Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, June the 16th, and you're very welcome to this edition of the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Last night in London, Irish Times columnist Fintan O'Toole was awarded the prestigious Orwell Prize for journalism for his writing on the Brexit referendum and its aftermath in the United Kingdom. Um, this is the second award that Fintan has won recently. In April, he won the European Press Prize for Best Commentary for Coverage of Brexit. I talked to Fintan uh, a little earlier about why his articles on Brexit have resonated with such a broad international audience and also what the current state of play is in the UK following last week's general election. Fintan O'Toole, congratulations on your award last night. Thanks very much. Um, we should start with the hardball question then. Uh, to what do you ascribe your triumphant progress <laughs> over the last few months? Um, I think I think the Irish Times and obviously then myself as, as part of the Irish Times, I, I just think we've been in a very interesting position uh, in relation to Brexit and Trump because you know we're we're very intimately involved in uh, the Atlantic world, for want of a better term. You know, we, we we're very plugged in to Britain in this case. Um, we sort of know them much better than they know us, uh, and at the same time, we've got a bit of distance. So you know, we have our own space and we have our, our own perspective. And I think it's the mixture of actually being really quite intimate with this place. And also being able to stand back and say, holy God, what is going on here? Um, that probably has informed my work on this. Um, I think also, if you're Irish, there's a thing that you can see that's damn obvious to you that I think wasn't obvious to a lot of British people, which was that this is essentially about nationalism. You know, the, 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 the English in particular, the Scots, of course, talk about nationalism, the Welsh to some extent, but the English don't talk about nationalism. They pretend that it doesn't exist, because you know, for them, it's, it's other people are nationalistic. They are not, because of course they've always wrapped up their nationalism in the empire uh, and in the United Kingdom. That that sort of quite strange construct. And so, if you were Irish, you could see this stuff because we've done it. You know, we've made all these mistakes. You know, we've 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 had all these kind of moments of national ecstasy that you then say, okay, what do we do now? Um, and we sort of know where this stuff goes, and they don't. So I suppose I was uh, just as an Irish person, I think, in this kind of lucky position to be able to perhaps point out some things to uh, English people that are obviously, when you say them, they're sort of obvious, but we're not generally part of the, the, the mainstream British discourse around Brexit. Why, why do you think the um, the this pathology of a particular kind of English nationalism, which, as you say, was buried for so long. Why do you think it's uh, it's erupted with such vigor and and with such disastrous results? In 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 our our view, I think in in the last five years, ten years. So, I mean, if you take the idea that English nationalism was sort of, uh, in a way, a kind of subterranean force that was that was kept in place 
by the empire and by the UK. Well, the empire, you know, maybe the penny has finally dropped if the empire has gone. Um, the UK, I think the rise of Scottish nationalism, uh, the, the peace process in Northern Ireland and what that suggests about the sort of contingent nature of the current UK, you know, the, the UK has become a sort of uh, very conscious construct and, and one that might be deconstructed. So therefore, that's not a, a force for stability either. Um, so the two things that have been kind of keeping English nationalism down, in a sense, are, are, are very much weakened. And then, of course, you have to have very specific circumstances, which are to do with all this kind of mess, the, the underlying um, uh, problems of the British economy and society, the, the way in which inequality uh, you know, has, has, has seeped in in a very, very profound way, uh, at, at the internal wars in the Tory party, um, the deep sense that you have in certain parts of England that, you know, there's a London up there and they don't give a damn about us and we're going to kick them. So you, you've had this sort of uh, some relatively short term factors, which I suppose like this last 10 year factors. And then you have these kind of long term factors of, of this sort of buried English nationalism. And, and they came together on a particular day at a particular moment to create a particular set of circumstances. The problem for the Brits is that they don't do this stuff. See, again, being Irish, like we kind of know about referendums. If David Cameron had had half a brain, he would have sat down really carefully and talked to Andy Kenny about like what the hell happens in a referendum campaign. And, and you know, we could have told him, like anybody could have told him that you know your idea that you can just control this thing and it's going to be all fine. Uh, you know, you'll charm everybody because you're brilliant at doing that uh, is nonsense. You know, we we know what referendum campaigns are like, and. Um, what Ed Kenny would have told David Cameron, of course, was very simple, which was you, you, you have two campaigns. You have an official yes campaign, official no campaign, official leave campaign, official remain campaign. And they each produce a 700-page detailed document on you know, what the consequences of staying in the European Union are and what the consequences of leaving the European Union are. And if they'd done that, of course, you would have had a genuine debate around you know, this really momentous decision. As it was, of course, the Brexiteers were allowed not to have the back of an envelope I mean, they, didn't, they don't even agree among themselves as to what outcome they really want, you know. And, and they were allowed to be completely unchallenged on this sort of stuff. They could lie. They could distort things. They could use figures that made no sense. Uh, you know, they could, they could get away. And they're still getting away with these sort of generalized, you know, epic statements about the liberation of Britain and, and, and how the, you know, this Empire 2.0 is going to start and everything's going to be fantastic, you know, and it's, 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 it's fantasy stuff. But they were allowed to get away with the fantasy stuff because of the absolute arrogance and, and, and smugness of, of, of the mainstream Tory establishment. Because one of the things that struck me about the campaign, I think you're absolutely right in what you just said about it, about it, contrasting it with Irish referendums, is that more often than not with Irish referendums, the dynamic has been that the, the no side has a kind of a built-in advantage because it doesn't have to do anything beyond saying the case for change has not been proven. But whereas that was not the dynamic that worked in the UK during the referendum la, uh, la, last year, because if it had, the, you know, it would have been a no vote. Yes, I, 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 I think that's absolutely right. So if you contrast it with the Scottish referendum, the referendum of Scottish independence the previous year, um, you know, the SNP had to produce, I think it was a 900 page document, right? And quite rightly, you know, they were the ones who were proposing this fundamental constitutional change. And so they have to prove the case and they couldn't. There were things like currency, for example, that they didn't have good answers on. Um, and that created a dynamic, you know, that, that there's a sort of an emotional 
move towards this big change. And then in the last couple of weeks, people start thinking, well, they don't really know the answers to some of these fundamental questions. Let's stick with the status quo. Whereas what, what happened, the, the, the dynamic in the Brexit referendum was that you had this very strong emotional push to get out. And the no or the, the, the Remain campaign, you know, all it had to say was, you know, you will pay. This will be terrible. You know, the project fear stuff. And, and it, it just it didn't work because it, it, it really refused to engage with what was really going on, which was this actual emotional surge. It was nationalism. And nationalism, as we know, is a really powerful force. And in order to deal with it, you have to be able to actually engage with people. You have to, be able to say, look, we know what your fears are. We know what your your your, your worries are. You know, we know why you feel displaced and anxious. And, and here's what we're going to do about it. Um, but you know, the Tories were in a really terrible position to do that, of course, because they were also imposing austerity. And you know, they were they were weakening many of the things that are really potent. I mean, just take a simple example of this. If you go back to the the great moment of British national self-expression was the Olympic ceremony, you know, in, in, in London in 2012, you know, which people loved and adored and it was brilliantly put together and it was a sort of social democratic statement. If you remember, like the NHS was at the center of British identity. Now, you know, you should be able to say, look, actually, we have these fantastic achievements. We have these things that we're really taken care of. But if the NHS is, is, is being gnawed at by privatization and austerity, then you know, people are not wrong to feel that these sorts of bulwarks of their identity are actually being taken away from them. And of course, we saw this in the British general election as well, that when somebody did start talking about these things and did start saying, you know, actually, you know, when it comes down to it, what you really want to be talking about is not some sort of apocalyptic Brexit promise, but what's actually happening in your health service, in your schools, in your communities. Yeah, let, let's talk about the um, about the election, because it really was an extraordinary few weeks. I mean, I think I mean, you've written a very interesting piece for the New York Review of Books this week about it. And one of the points you make is the way in which the, the deep ambiguity of the Brexit vote um, last year was sort of completely ignored by the internal dynamics of the Conservative Party and the, and the, and the British media in the run up to the election and the calling of the election by Theresa May. But in the last few weeks, and it's only been a few weeks, it's hard to imagine, we have gone from crush the saboteurs on the front of the Daily Mail to Theresa May being absolutely excoriated this morning for her behaviour when she visited the, the, the scene of that awful tragedy in, in London yesterday. I, I can never remember such a flip, a political flip in, in Britain in such a short period of time. Yeah, I, I, it was very interesting. Like last night at the Orwell Prize, I was talking to probably somebody who probably should have won <laughs> the Orwell Prize, John Harris, the wonderful uh, Guardian writer who, you know, reports from the front line on the ground all the time. And, you know, he, he was saying that it was very late in the day, you know, because, he, he, you know, he's very good at just talking to people and finding out how they're thinking and feeling. He said it was very late in the day. He said, you know, that, that even like three, four weeks into the campaign, he was still hearing people, you know, working class people in Wolverhampton or whatever, parroting back to him strong and stable, you know, the, the, the thing was working, the thing that kind of now seems so ludicrous, you know, but this kind of robotic Maybot thing of just kind of saying these slogans over and over again, we're saying he was still kind of hearing them uh, coming back. And it was only really quite late in the day when it suddenly switched. And it switched because people suddenly realized they've built this cult of personality around somebody who really doesn't have much of a personality, you know, that, uh, that a, a lot of it did come down to, 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 to the human uh, reaction to May. Um, but also the fact that Corbyn just had this extraordinary ability to remain dignified, remain calm, and in particular remain optimistic. I, 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 you get a sense in, in Britain that people are just tired of 
the gloom and the doom and the panic, you know, and, and, and the sense that everything is going to hell in a handcart, you know, and actually just want somebody to say, look, it can, it could be better. Um, there, there's ways of making your life more decent. Um, and, and, and that definitely did change. And I, I think you're absolutely right to you that like, it is extraordinary. I, I, I don't remember anything like it in, in, in my, how often have we been saying that in the last couple of years, you know, but, but it, what I think what it showed is that, uh, Brexit's not a done deal. You know, that the, what Brexit did was it introduced a really profound volatility into British politics. Um, you know, people really don't know where they are and therefore nobody knows how to talk to them, how to quite treat them, you know, where, what story to tell. Elections are won and lost on what kind of narrative you have. And of course, the fact was that May's narrative has this huge Brexit-shaped hole right in the middle of it because... You know, this is the extraordinary thing. They don't know what they're doing. I mean, they literally don't know answers to some of the most basic questions. So this is a Brexit election. And then what have you got to say about Brexit? No deal is better than a bad deal. Brexit means Brexit. You know, they're parroting these, these ludicrous and increasingly inane slogans. And I think that is also coming coming across to people that they're kind of realizing, oh, my God, we've, we've, we've made this huge choice, but we don't know what it is. So as a result, despite the fact that, that the United Kingdom, with its first past the post system, tends to favor a, you know, a, a clear result above anything else, you know, it's, it's engineered to deliver that. But in fact, the result of last week's election reflects the ambiguity of, uh, of post-Brexit or perhaps pre, pre-Brexit uh, United Kingdom in the run-up now to whatever the process is and how it's going to pan out over the next two years, not only because the Tories do not have a majority, not only because they're reliant on a small and rather peculiar party in Northern Ireland, but also through things like the rise of a new form of Scottish Conservative Party, which has a somewhat different agenda, a resurgent Labour Party coming from the left. You actually, the, the, the new House of Parliament is probably a much better reflection of the current state of play on the ground in the UK. Yes, it is. And, and of course, you know, the, the, the whole... Uh, thrust of the Tory campaign, and it wasn't even, of course, you know, a Tory campaign, it was Theresa May's team's campaign, you know, that was the way it was framed. But it was framed in a way that was actually very, very worrying for democracy, right? Because basically what it was saying is Brexit was a moment of absolute national unity. Uh, The people have spoken, you know, we're all together on this. And therefore, the only problem now is that Parliament doesn't reflect this, that we've got these saboteurs, we've got these, you know, dissidents, we've got these people who who are really potential traitors, in our midst. And so the point of the election is that Parliament should uh, reflect this national unity. Now, first of all, of course, this was completely ludicrous, exactly as you were saying. I mean, there was no national unity. I mean, even in the referendum, you know, 52-48 is not national unity. But also we know that a lot of the 52% I mean, voted uh, because they were told by Boris Johnson that they could have their cake and eat it, that they, you know, they were going to have all the benefits of European Union membership. Remember, Boris Johnson wrote in the, in the Daily Telegraph the morning after Brexit in his column, you know, don't worry about nothing is going to change. You will still be able to go and live and work in the, in the European Union. If you're a student, you can go study there. You know, we're going to be trading exactly as we are right now. You know, I, I mean, it was just fantasy stuff. And a lot of people bought the fantasy. I mean, Boris was a really important player in, 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 in all of this kind of stuff. So the idea that this was some sort of unified vote for a single thing itself was ludicrous. But even if it was true, I mean, even if it was true that actually, you know, there was a decisive vote, you can't, you can't look at it again. The very worrying notion then that the Parliament must be some sort of essentially, you know, a, a, a bulwark of a one-party Tory state, which is really what May was saying. 
And of course, all the rhetoric, all the Daily Mail rhetoric about saboteurs and enemies of the people, you know, it was this kind of weirdly French revolutionary Rousseau rhetoric, you know, that the people have spoken and therefore anybody who goes against them is a traitor. Um, that, that sort of stuff is, is very much against the better traditions of British democracy. Uh, you know, which is is a democratic pluralism in which Parliament is supposed to be sovereign, in which you know the the, the multiplicity of voices within the Parliament is supposed to sort of be, you know be giving voice to the nation in whatever way. Uh, so it was very dangerous stuff, and 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 you know whatever you think about Brexit, I I, I I think it's very important that there was a check put on that. The problem, of course, is it, it leaves it leaves the question of authority really fundamentally open. So. The the Brits uh, changed the nature of authority. So so what Brexit did was, you know, if you know anything about British history, particularly English history, it's all about Parliament. It's all about the sovereignty of Parliament, right? And then they said, actually, forget about that. You know, we're going to do a referendum, and we're going to do a referendum on a really really fundamental constitutional question. Um, and once you do that, then you're left with, well, who has authority? I mean, and we saw that. Like, so Parliament turned out not to have any real authority in the Brexit thing. So, like, you have to do this. This is what the people have spoken. And it, it was probably inevitable that when you completely disturb the nature of how political authority works in your society, you're going to end up with no authority. You know, uh, which is what they've ended up with now, of course. Which is nobody is in charge. So May is not in charge, but of course Corbyn isn't in charge either. Um, the Parliament isn't really in charge. And of course, the practical uh, ramifications of this are enormous because. If you're Michel Barnier and you're going into this, the room next week to, to start talking to them, I mean, who are you talking to? Um, would you disclose your bottom line in negotiations to someone whom you think has no authority to go and sell whatever compromise might might emerge? Uh, you know, it's, a, it's just it's just a it's a crazy kind of situation. I mean, it's it's very difficult to know how that's going to pan out. You have this dead woman walking in Number Ten Downing Street. There seems to be little or no appetite in her party to either get rid of her because that that's a kind of an appalling vista in terms of how that might pan out, or to go for another election because the polls are looking increasingly negative. So we we seem seems as if we're likely to continue for the future with this kind of castrated government supported by the DUP. One of the, one of the things I thought was most amusing last weekend was the kind of the, uh, the kind of who, who are the DUP questions that, that proliferated across social media and the exp- ex- exclamations of horror, particularly from the left, I think, when people actually rec- recognised or realised some of the things that Dem- the Democratic Unionist Party actually stands for, including homophobia, denial of women's rights and creationism. Yeah, I mean, uh, in a less serious context, it would be very, very funny. Uh, and yeah, yeah, I mean, you could see the internet exploding, you know, with, with, with these questions. I mean, it was very interesting that over the weekend, you know, where there was so much uh, huge news, I, I think the most read thing on our website was, was, was a piece about the DUP from six, seven weeks ago. Um, and you could see that that was purely the result of people in Britain Googling and getting up this piece about the DUP and its very weird connection with Saudi, potentially with Saudi money in the Brexit referendum campaign. And you can see people that are sharing that going, oh, you know, the WTF stuff was all over it. Like, what, what is happening here? Who are these people? Um, and in one way, it serves them right, you know, because one of the things that certainly made me very angry as an Irish person watching the Brexit debates, you know, was Ireland just like, it just didn't exist. It, it, I remember in the the big final set piece Wembley debate, you know, uh, Francis O'Grady, who's the general secretary of the Trade Union Congress, 
was one of the, the main remain speakers. And, and at one point she said, you know, and you really must think very carefully about the effect on, on, on the peace process in Northern Ireland, the Belfast Agreement. You know? And everybody's looked at her as if she'd said, you know, but Al- Albania is very important in this, in, this, in this referendum, you know. And they just kind of looked at her and they just moved on. You know, it was just like, you know, let's not talk about that. Who cares? Um, and so there is a kind of historical joke that they've ended up with the, the consequences of this, you know, which is, which is, Northern Ireland becoming kind of absolutely central to their own uh, political future. Um, I've, I've written a piece for tomorrow's paper about, you know, the, the great unrequited love affairs in, in history, um, you know, with, with Dante and Beatrice or, or, or um, Quasimodo and Esmeralda, you know, whatever, uh, and the DUP in Britain, you know, that the DUP loves, lo- loves to be British, but the British don't love the DUP. Um, and it's a very strange situation, you know, the, the, the kind of revulsion that's there. Uh, Polo Murray wrote a very interesting piece in our paper during the week about the British left, and I, I think quite rightly kind of excoriating them for, you know, for, for, for exaggerating the awfulness of the DUP. But I think there's another point here, which is the Tories don't like the DUP either. You know, I mean, the, the Tories have been desperately trying to get away from that position where there's some sort of troglodytic, you know, old Protestant British identity. Um, most of them, there's certainly some uh, on the pretty large lunatic fringe who, who still hold it. But, you know, the idea that they want to be listening to the DUP for the next two or three years, you know, that they want these people to be at the center of their world, you know, they really don't. And of course, they will betray them as soon as they possibly can. But isn't one of the one of the strengths that the DUP has or one of the reasons they have a fairly good hand of cards at the moment is that <clears throat> one of the things about that, the Democratic Unionist as a party, is they've always been sort of the mill wall of, of politics on these islands that, you know, well, nobody likes us and we don't care has always been cart- part of their, of their USP and they don't really they don't need to support the government that much so they can probably strike a fairly hard deal oh they will yeah I mean what they'll do is they'll get loads of money you know I mean of course like they're in a fantastic position and actually if I was living in Northern Ireland and I was worried about my local hospital or whatever you know I'd, I'd, be, I'd be pretty happy about this because uh, the money will flow um, you know stuff their mouths with gold will be the um, the, the operative slogan of, of, of the May government However, they're in very deep trouble because they, uh, you, you know, we, we deride Boris Johnson's have your cake and eat it thing. But the DUP's position on Brexit and on, particularly on the border is a have your cake and eat it position, you know. So if you read their manifesto, or when, when the election was ultimately saying, although the DUP are in favor of, of a soft border and this will, you know, change the whole Brexit calculation. But if you read their DUP's manifesto for the Westminster elections, they, they want to pull out of the customs union. Now, and then they say, well, we, we don't want a hard border. Now, you know, th- this is have your cake and eat it stuff. It's, 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 it's two completely incompatible positions. If you're out of the customs union, I mean, a child can tell you, if you're in different customs regimes, you have to have a customs border. Particularly, if you think about this over the longer term, when Britain starts doing trade deals with the United States, with China, with whatever, you know, th- these customs regimes are going to be radically different. You know, is U.S. beef going to be coming into Northern Ireland? Probably, yes. What does that do to the Irish beef industry if you don't have a border? I mean, you know, just you can go on and on and on about this. But so they keep saying we want a soft border, but they also keep saying we we want out of the customs union. Now, what may end up happening is that the DUP has to see reality and it has to say actually Britain has to remain in the customs union. If that's the case, of course, that radically alters the nature of Brexit because if you're going to remain in the customs union. 
you may as well stay in, in the single market. And then you're looking at a Norway type solution, you know, where, where you have this very close relationship to the European Union. You have freedom of movement. You have to pay into the European budget. You have to accept all the European regulations. And then just you come back to your crisis of authority. Who can sell that to the you know Eurosceptic wing of the Tory party to, to, to a large element of the British public that thinks that that's exactly what it was getting away from? So the DUP's position could end up being a very significant obstacle on the road towards Brexit. So am I being over-optimistic then as a result of this election in looking at the DUP and given the ambiguity you've just described, that, that, that they could possibly shift their position on the customs union and then looking at um, a conservative government where figures such as, you know, Philip Hammond, Damien Green, uh, Ruth Davis in Scotland are, are in the ascendant for the moment anyway, which surely has to kind of shift the Tory position back from the, uh, from the no, no deal is better than a bad deal position. Yeah, I mean, um, there's a very um, interesting sort of analysis that you're getting if you talk to people. Um, I'm still in London. You know, you talk to people here. Um, it's, it, it's, it's a very bad taste metaphor. So excuse me for this, but it, this is what people are saying, right? Which is the, the, the May as a sort of suicide bomber, right? So that they keep her in place for two years while the deal is done. They know the deal is going to be appalling. Uh, and it's going to involve all of these compromises that they said they would never do. And then they bring May back, they execute her, and they say it was all her fault, but she's done this deal and we have to stick with it now. But that's the narrative. She's the sort of sacrificial figure who's going to uh, be there in order to get the blame for when they actually have to come up with a compromise deal that they've told people they won't do. Now, it's a very plausible scenario. The problem with it is that I, I just don't think you can keep a zombie walking in politics for two years. You know, events are already happening. You know, things like the horrific fire in London. Um, you know, you couldn't, you can't underestimate the extent to which people are just in a rage about that and feel so ashamed about it. May's dreadful response to it you know where she couldn't even go and talk to the pizza to, to the survivors you know you you contrast that with jeremy corbyn you know who, who looked human you know who looked around and, and put his arm around people and, and talk to people and may stands there you know she she does actually look like a zombie figure she looks like somebody who just has lost everything no energy no authority no capacity to do this job so the idea of sort of keeping her in place and propping her up for a while in, in, in theory, it sounds very clever, but I'm just not convinced that politics works like that. So nobody knows what the hell is going to happen, I suppose we can say. Yeah, you know, like we keep saying this, but I, I just don't remember a situation in, in geez, I'm 30 years right for the Irish Times now, you know, nearly. I don't remember a situation like this, you know, where, where on something so fundamental, there are so many different possibilities, you know. So on the one side, you've got this, you know, quite decent possibility that actually you will end up in a Norway type deal, which wouldn't be bad for Ireland. I mean, it'd be the best possible outcome that we could get. And and, and in some ways, the possibility of that has increased, but also the possibility of, of, a, of an absolute car crash. I mean, of just of, of it being impossible to negotiate, you know, so that, that, that the negotiation starts next week. And it just quickly becomes clear that the Europeans can't sort of offer anything really because they can't trust anybody and that the on the british side david davis or whatever you know 
just is kind of saying, I'm not going to be the guy who's going to get shot over this. I'm not going to give away uh, the the promises that we made. I'm going to stick to all of this sort of have your cake and eat it stuff, where we're not going to do a deal on the budget, where we're you know we're, we're going to keep a hard line. Um, so you have these two possibilities, one of which is relatively benign, and one of which is absolutely disastrous. And at the moment, I, I don't think any prognosticator, um, even one as reckless as me, you know, would would wish to choose between them. Well, sounds like you'd be kept in a job for a while. Anyway, listen, congratulations again, Fintan, <laughs> on your on your award last night, and uh, talk to you again soon. Thanks very much. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon. Remember, you can mail me at hlinhan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. Uh, But until the next time, thanks very much for listening.